be found in 1 Kings chapter 10, and then the second will be found a chapter over in 1 Kings chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to me to 1 Kings chapter 10. If you're using the Pew Bibles, you can find it on page 339. 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 to 9. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan, with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold, and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his tables, the seating of his officials, the attending servants, in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord. She was overwhelmed. She said to the king, The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me, in wisdom and wealth you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your men must be, How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. Flipping over to chapter 11, we'll read verses 1 through 13. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughters, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his hearts after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David, his father, had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I have commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him 
but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. This is the word of the Lord. So we face a couple of challenges when trying to understand, come to know God and trying to understand the Bible. I illustrate one from my experience as a kid. In the early 60s, Americans went to church. New Englanders, at least, went to church. I don't know, Californians, I don't know about that, but New Englanders, we went to church. And it wasn't because, it wasn't because we had some kind of a understanding of what we were doing. It was a cultural thing to do. You go to church. And I, I, my parents would occasionally take me to church. And often enough, that we, our church had this thing going on. Where if you memorized, in third grade, we were supposed to memorize the 23rd Psalm. And then we have a quiz. And if we pass the quiz, they give us a Bible with our name in gold gilded on there. And so, you know, we got this, I, I managed, everybody had to, you know, you memorize this thing and you get a Bible. So we brought it home. And my brother had gotten a Bible about the same time. So we decided it would be a great idea if every night, I don't know why we decided, but every night we'd read a chapter of the Bible before we went to bed. And so we did this. For about three days. And before we said, what is going on here? What is any, why? How do you understand this stuff? So then we lost heart and went back to reading our novels and our adventure books and all that kind of thing. One of the challenges is we, we're, you know, if you find Shakespeare difficult in English class, what are you going to do with the Bible? I mean, Shakespeare's only four or five hundred years old. The Bible, two thousand years old. To a people much different than us. Well, actually, the part of the Bible we're reading, three thousand years old. To people much different than us. How are we going to understand this? That's one of the challenges. And so what we've been doing together this year, since September, is a broad sweep of Scripture. So that if we have a broad overview of the entire Bible, then anytime we read a piece, we know where it fits in. And really, the Bible tells only one big story, one long story from beginning to end. An epic novel, well, except that it's not a novel, it's true. But an epic from beginning to end, one story. And if we can grab hold of this story, then we know where all the little pieces fit in. That's one of the challenges, is knowing what the Bible's talking about. Because if we're going to find God through the Bible, we've got to understand what the Bible's talking about. And that's one of the challenges. The other challenge I'd say to coming to faith is featured so far in the service. It's featured in the sharing from Cindy. It's featured in the prayer from David. It's featured in our missionaries and those who serve overseas. You know, the whole issue is, if there is a God, why is the world a place where babies can be born with congenital conditions that mean they're going to die before they're a year old? If there is a God, why is, there, why is it that one of the poorest nations on earth could be hit by an earthquake and the buildings aren't reinforced and thousands die? If there is a God, why in a place like contemporary America can your fate, your well-being, be hindered significantly by your, the color of your skin? Where you can be born into 
entrenched poverty and face a much higher percentage of deleterious outcomes in life just because of your genetics. If there is a God, why is there a world like this? And you know, that's exactly the question that much of the Bible, much of the Old Testament, including our passage today, was written to address. Now, it tells a long story to answer that question, but it was addressing the question of, if there is a God, and for Jews the question was, if there is a God and we are his people, why are our lives the way they are? Why is our world the way it is? It wasn't just them personally, they, you know, they were going through little personal upsets, but their country had been invaded. Their country had been destroyed. The leaders had been dragged into exile. The rest of the people were living in poverty. And the question that comes is, why? If there is a God, and he's who we say he is, and he loves us, then why is our world so messed up? What's happened to us? And so we've been looking at scripture as it answers that question from the beginning to the end. And, and it starts off in Genesis 1 and 2, just for review. Genesis 1 and 2, familiar to many of you, the story of creation. It starts off by saying, God did not make the world this way. The Bible doesn't say, it doesn't uh, try to, doesn't, the Bible doesn't disagree that the world's messed up. Well, what the Bible insists is that, that God didn't make it this way. Within the third chapter of Genesis, as far as I got as a little kid, the third chapter of Genesis, it's fall. Man turned away from God. And then here we are. All the rest of this that's come is because we turned away from God. It, it, scripture insists that God made the world beautiful. And God made people good. But people turned away. And the world descended into darkness. But that's not the fundamental message of Scripture. Because the fundamental message of Scripture is that God is redeeming his world. God is turning this world back to what it used to be. Back to the way he made it. And we see his efforts to do that in the Old Testament. Before we get to Jesus, long before, in the Old Testament, we see God doing this. Changing the world back to what it should be. And he begins this with the character Abraham in Genesis 12. And he gives Abraham three promises. All these promises eventually will lead to the world being back the way it should be. He promises Abraham, first of all, descendants. Not just one man, not just one family, but descendants. As many as the stars in the sea. God is calling a new people to himself. And then he promises Abraham a land. The land of Israel, a land of Palestine. A place where he can live with his people, with God, in prosperity, a healthy place, a holy place. And, and, but the problem is, so far, the promises are only about Israel. Israel gets descendants. Israel gets the land and prosperity. But what about the rest of the world? And the third promise to Abraham is this, is that God will work through Israel. Once Israel is established, once they have a large population, once they have a place to call their own, once they have safety and security and prosperity, then through Israel, God will redeem the whole world. That's the promise of the Old Testament. That's the promise of Genesis 12, which sets out the structure for the whole of the Bible. This is the promise of God. 
But there's a disconnect. It doesn't actually happen. Some of it starts to happen. Israel gets descendants innumerable. And they spread throughout. And by the time you get to the second book of the Bible, by the time you get to the first chapter of Exodus, Israel has innumerable descendants. God's answered that promise. And then you get into Exodus. And God brings them out of slavery in a foreign land. You get into Numbers. He invites them to go into Israel. They decline. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But finally, after 40 years, God calls them again and says, Look, I'll give you your land. And in the book of Joshua, he offers them that land and he takes them in. And he protects them as they fight for their land. So the God has fulfilled the two promises. But then what about that third promise? So far, it's only Israel that has a lot of descendants that are in relationship with God. So far, it's only Israel that has this relationship with God. So far, it's only Israel that's safe in its own land under the blessing of God. So far, only Israel is blessed. And what about that third promise? What about the other 95, 98% of the world? What's going to happen to them? And our passage today tells us that God starts to fulfill that promise of blessing to the nations. And then his people do something again, which derails it all. So turn with me to First, Sam, First Kings chapter 10. We look at, first of all, we look at how God begins to fulfill that promise, and then we'll take a look at how that promise is derailed. Page 246 in your pew Bible. 1 Kings chapter 10. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Do you see what's happening here in 1 Corinthians 10? 1 Kings 10? The queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and about his prosperity and success and about his relationship with the Lord. And so she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan with camels and carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to bring tribute. The queen of Sheba came to bring tribute to Solomon in reciprocation for enlightenment that he'll give her. She came to Solomon and talked to him about all she had on her mind, and Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers and the burnt offerings he made at the temple, when she saw his wealth, the prosperity of the nation, when she saw their justice and generosity, when she saw their temple and their worship of God, she said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and about your wisdom is true. But I didn't believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not half was told me. In wisdom and in wealth, you have far exceeded the report I've heard. What's going on? What's the point? This is not just a random story. This is a hugely significant story in the narrative. There's something special that's going on here with the Queen of Sheba. Oh, you won't be able to read the countries, but let me see if I can do this pointer. If I can find the pointer. Okay. Sheba. We now call it Yemen. Down here in the south. Israel. Up here. Do you see how far 
Israel's reputation has spread. Do you see how far Solomon's reputation has spread? That the queen of Sheba comes from Yemen. The, Sheba, Shaba, uh, Sabah, now no, no more commonly called Sabah. Sabah was an empire that lasted about 1250-1500 years. An established empire. Wealthy, a center of civilization in its own right. And yet the queen had heard so much about his reputation that she took a caravan with a lot of her wealth, went up to Israel to find out what's going on. Find out something about Solomon, about his wealth, his success as a ruler, and about his God. What's going on here? God is bringing blessing to the nations through Israel. God elevates Israel, and the idea in the Old Testament was that then all the world would come to Israel and come to learn about its governance, come to learn about its wealth, and come to learn about its God. God was fulfilling his promise. That's 1 Kings 10. We're just on the cusp of God fulfilling the third promise and bringing salvation to the world. Salvation to the world, just on the cusp. And then we read 1 Kings chapter 11. And instead of the story proceeding where other nations come to Israel, the story radically changes. See how 1 Kings 11 begins. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. He loved the Moabites, he loved the Ammonites, he loved the Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they'll surely turn your hearts after their gods. And Solomon had a choice. These women and these treaties with foreign powers were God. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to the women in love, not to God in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wife led him astray. As he grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. Just as the nations were beginning to come to Israel to learn about God, Solomon, Israel's leader, turned his back on God to find out and worship the nation's gods around him. And that made all the difference. From this point on, Israel will descend into rejection of God and into wickedness and eventually into exile. And they will face a holocaust in 722 B.C., another holocaust in 587 B.C. And they will, most, of, most of Israel will be wiped off the earth. Only a small percentage ever recovered and returned. Not because God's uncaring. Not because God's weak. Not because God doesn't love the nation. God poured out his grace and poured out his love and poured out his understanding. And what God required of them in response was just this. That they worship him alone. And that they obey him fully. Obey him reasonably, actually. He was quite tolerant about disobedience. And yet, Solomon wouldn't do that. With all the blessing, all the wisdom, all the wealth, it wasn't enough for him. With all the wives he had available in Israel, it wasn't enough for him. He also wanted the relationships with all these others. And he turned away from his God. What does any of this say to us 
in abbreviated form this morning. We are at a new stage. We are at a new stage in what God is doing in the world. God is going back to this third promise, blessing to the nations. Just like he began in 1 Kings 10, God is returning to that stage of history. Only this time, he's not calling the nations to come to us. He's not calling Americans to come into church. He's not calling all the other nations to come to America. He's calling us now to go. To go to friends who don't know about Christ. To go to nations like Nepal who have little access to the gospel. Instead of people coming to hear the gospel, he's calling us to go and talk about the gospel, to share Christ with others. And yet we face the same expectations from God. As he's blessed us, so he also calls us to a commitment. Communion is a clear demonstration of the degree to which God goes in his commitment for us. For us individually, for the human race as a whole, communion is a demonstration of God's commitment that though the world was lost, when there was no other way, he sent his own son to die for sin so that he could invite the lost back to himself. This is a degree of God's commitment to us. And in reciprocation, God calls us to commitment to him. He calls us to the same two kinds of commitments, to obedience and to worship. He calls us to commitments, and those commitments include marriage. He calls us to worship, to worship him alone in reciprocation for the service he's done in our lives. God is showing us, has shown us great blessing. And he's inviting us to be his instrument of blessing to the world. But in order to do that, we need to worship him and worship him alone. And this needs to translate into our lives, including the intimate relationships we have and the people we marry. Solomon was on the cusp of doing something universal for the world. The church today is on the cusp of doing something universal in world shaping. In order to fulfill our calling as a church and as individuals, we must succeed where Solomon failed. We must worship God alone, and we must obey him even in the relationships we form in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, for communion, we thank you. The message it sends of your commitment to us. Father, work in our hearts that we would warmly embrace what you call us to, that we would worship you alone, and that you would be the center of all of our decisions including decisions about who we marry. We ask for your grace to be at work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.